Welcome to Journal Spotting. Confused over which drink to offer your patients? Orange juice or coffee? Is the sugar bad for them or is caffeine worse? Which has more fibre? Don't those septic patients need vitamin C? Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice changing articles along with specialist interviews, guidelines and more. We scale the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back, listeners, to another Journal Spotting Roundup. So sorry, it's been a bit of a delay since our last episode. You poor journal junkies, you must be going through some really awful withdrawals. Our excuses include, well, work, holidays, deadlines, the scorching sun, journal spotting beavers and train drivers going on strike, and um, a toddler ate my dusty BMJ. That and we have chosen to spend our evenings catching up with Stranger Things and hoping England's women can win the European Cup. This fiery heat seems to have brought the UK public to their senses mind as we have lost our compulsive liar of a Prime Minister. Yay! (laughs) But who will, no doubt, soon be replaced by yet another one. Boo! But enough political doom and gloom. Coincidentally, Doom and Gloom are also the names of the two hopefuls competing to be Prime Minister. Your eager ears have entered the journal spotting zone, and they were about to get filled with the latest and greatest in medical literature. And that there is the voice of my awesome co-host tonight, GP and lifestyle medicine extraordinaire, Dr Cammy Hirons. Uh, Cammy, how have you been coping with the heat wave, and uh, what are you covering for us today? How have I been coping? Well, not bad. I um, I took my fan into the surgery and had an amazing contraption where I draped a wet towel on it. Not convinced that actually helped, but still. And plus, I also had ice packs strapped to my head for most of my surgery uh, the other day, which I definitely got some strange looks from patients and tried to stop them from fainting as they walked into my room. But my computer, patients and stethoscope all remain unmelted. Were the patients about to faint because they walked into a room and saw, I don't know, <laughs> somebody with a towel over the head and they thought it was either, I don't know, a ghost or the Ku Klux Klan or something awful? Their towel wasn't on my head, oh, okay. it was on the fan. Oh, it was on the fan, okay. Good to know. I didn't do a literature review on the best way to cool down. That would have been a good idea. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a good idea. Anyway. <laughs> um, anyway, sidetracked. Today, I am going to be covering some of the latest literature with a lifestyle approach, including an article on choosing wisely, some research on the use of yoga for migraines, and a study that will hopefully help answer if coffee helps reduce mortality. That's a good bunch of articles there. Okay. And I am, as always, am Dr. Barnaby Hirons. Um, I'm afraid at my work, uh, my calls to turn off the air conditioning to save the environment fell on deaf ears and received stern, sweaty looks. And if I'm honest, I gave up pretty quickly and just enjoyed the cool air. Um, Today, I will cover the evidence behind the dreaded four-hour emergency department target, thunderstorm asthma, which is almost as exciting as its name suggests, and a trippy trip through psychedelic medications, the latest on vitamin C and sepsis, and pulse oximetry in people of colour. Amazing, quite a few bits there. So as always, listeners, follow us on your usual podcast library and rate us wherever you can. This helps to push us up the charts and encourage more listeners. Also, you can follow us on Twitter and feel free to email with comments, recommendations or poetry to journalspotting at gmail.com. Oh, and share the episode with all your WhatsApp social media buddies. 
Also, if you want to hear what it's like to be a doctor in Ukraine right now, check out our War in Ukraine series. And if you want to know your role in this crazy climate catastrophe, check out our Climate Zone series. Right, let's get on with the show. Barney, you're up first. All right, all right. Okay, I'm going to ask our listeners and my co-host here, co-host, sorry, here to do something a bit weird. I want you to close your eyes and focus hard on what emotions this phrase builds in you. Uh, Doctor, they're approaching their four-hour target. Hang on, whoever said that? Are they heavy smokers? Because heavy smokers, <laughs> um, you know the, you know the sort, whoever they are, a manager or nurse or something like that. No, but good question. And mainly I think that's PTSD, oh, yeah. um, some anger, frustration and a general let me care for my patients rather than worry about a four hour target kind of feeling. Nice. Yeah, I, yeah, I think we all can all relate to that. Just so you know, I may have a cure for PTSD a bit later on in the show. Ooh. So yeah, looking forward to that. Maybe I can get cure that for you. Yeah. Nothing rolls eyes for junior doctors in England than the dreaded four-hour target, and I'm pretty sure it's the same in many other countries. It's ridiculous. It's pushing sick patients to packed wards with minimal nursing. Patients get missed. Patients get lost. Surely the target is detrimental to patients' health. Or is it? So, hang on, Canada and Australia, they've also got four-hour targets, don't they? Um, And evidence from small studies there showed potential harm to patients of going over. But would this be the same in the UK? Yeah, exactly. This was a retrospective observational study of about 26,500 NHS patients admitted from the emergency department pre-COVID times. The primary outcome was 30-day mortality. Their overall mortality was 8.7%, which I've looked it up and is slightly above the pre-COVID UK average, which is around 3.3%. So they were a fairly sick cohort. The authors calculated the standardised mortality rate, and this is observed deaths over expected deaths, and looked for the association with time in the emergency department. Headline, the SMR, the standardised mortality rate, increased in a linear dose-related fashion for patients stuck in ED for longer than five hours from arrival. So they compared things to you know, waiting for six hours. So compared to waiting six hours, the risk of death increased by 8% if you wait for six to eight hours and 10% if you're waiting for eight to 12 hours. This led to a calculated number needed to harm of 82, which means of 82 patients whose admission was delayed for six to eight hours, one would die. For a bit more insight, in April 2019, there were 67,000 NHS patients who were in the emergency department for over four hours before admission. Now, I can't find data on over six hours, but if we use a conservative estimate of number needed to harm of, say, one in 100 instead of one over 82, we'd be talking around 670 excess deaths in the UK in one month. That's quite a lot. That is quite a lot of excess deaths, isn't it? Now, Of course, this is all an association, and association doesn't mean causation. The authors did adjust for confounders, but there are an infinite number of factors, case by case, which could affect these results. On the other hand, the association is is very clear. So whatever the reason, longer stays in the emergency department for your patients appears to increase their risk of dying. So, Medreg... How might this change what you're going to do when you're on call? Oh, when I go back to on call anyway after my research. But yes, I think mostly these factors are 
out of our control. And I and I think it's rarely the med reg who causes breaching of the four hour target. Although happy for people to disagree <laughs> with that and maybe a bit biased. But this is important data. It's really important to realize why we have the four hour target. It's important to not just relate it to some distant, pointless government target. Um, and yeah, I think it really has changed my perspective on the situation. You know, playing devil's advocate here, you know, when you when you talk through that study, Barney, I'm, I'm not too surprised really what they found is the longer that patients are waiting to be seen in A&E. So very sick people go to A&E, the longer that they go without being seen and without getting treatment, the light, more likely they are to die. What I do find is the numbers are very shocking. So, you know, so this should be admitted under medicine from ED. So they will be seen by doctors, they'll be seen by the emergency department, but it's being admitted to medicine. Um, on the other hand, I guess the people who are like, stuck in ED for longer tend to be the sicker patients before that because they can't be moved and they need a sort of safe place to go to. So that may also be a factor. So it looks like the four hour window isn't as pointless as you might have liked, Barney. But there are plenty of things we can do as medics which lack value. And this great article called Choosing Wisely in Adult Hospital Medicine looks at exactly this. Essentially, the American Board of Internal Medicine got together a cracking team to find the most low-value care provided in the USA. This is care that is either useless, harmful, expensive, or maybe all three. Now, there were three phases – so one, healthcare providers and patients sent in suggestions for low-value care. Two, these were whittled down to 283 individual recommendations, of which 22 were the most frequently brought up. And thirdly, a committee of doctors and patients chose the top recommendations. And these are key points raised, some of which are perhaps more suited to our American listeners, but they are all relevant. Okay, so of this, are you ready for the recommendations, Barney? Go for it, yeah. Okay, so number one, avoid using opiates for the treatment of mild, acute pain. First, try non-opiates. If using opiates, then give in conjunction with a non-opioid and give the shortest duration possible. So that should be one week. Okay, that's good. Because I think there's been quite a bit of evidence recently about this as well, how um, often we can give other things and sometimes NSAIDs or simple analgesics work just as well as weak opioids. Good. Okay, good recommendation. Absolutely. We got taught the analgesic ladder we should be using. Yeah. Okay, so number two, when giving oxygen, do not maintain a peripheral capillary oxygen saturation of higher than 96% as this increases your risk of cytokine production, decreased cardiac output, coronary vasoconstriction, acute lung injury, and even mortality. Possible exclusions for these include treatment for carbon monoxide poisoning, cluster headaches, sickle cell crisis, or pneumothorax. But although even for these, it's often not necessary. And I know that you have covered this quite a few times. Yeah, this is a favourite of mine. I don't think I need to say anything else about it, but that's good. I'm glad that's in the recommendations. Okay, their third recommendation. I think we can all say hallelujah for this one. Do not wake patients up at night for routine care. So they found that workflow should be redesigned to promote sleep at night. Poor in-hospital sleep is associated with high blood pressure, so patients are getting more medication, leaving hospital and becoming hypotensive. Hyperglycemia, immune dysfunction and delirium. Basically, let them sleep. Great. Again, we've covered this before. That's a good one. Okay. Um, Okay, number four. 
CKMB is not useful in acute coronary syndrome compared to troponin, so don't order it. That was a quick one. Number five, do not order daily chest x-rays in hospitalised patients unless there is a specific clinical indication, and that even includes intensive care. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think in England we don't do this so much, but I remember in Australia they would just, um, by routine, anybody who was intubated, um, even if they were totally stable, stable enough and intubated, they would get a daily x-ray. So, yeah, okay. Okay. Okay, number six. This is an interesting one. Do not routinely prescribe VTE prophylaxis to all hospitalised patients. So use that annoying evidence-based risk stratification system which keeps flashing at you whilst you clerk in your patients. VTE prophylaxis in patients who do not need it is both painful, we hear that all the time, don't we, Mm. and potentially harmful. If they've got a high bleeding risk, consider TED stockings and mechanical prophylaxis. Yeah, that's interesting as well because we get so used to just going on the side of um, giving, you know, sort of heparin and things. Well, actually, look, not everybody needs it, and it's worth remembering that. Yeah. I, I think this is a great paper, actually. They've done some work previously a few years ago looking at similar things, and these are these are slightly different suggestions, and I, I think they're doing some really great work. Um, they also tell you, sort of outside the top recommendations, they give you a list of what other interesting suggestions came up. Yeah, there's uh, some good ones. Yeah, and I think... Well, for me, the top three, which I found of these was uh, don't use DocuSafe for constipation. Is it cheap? Yes. Is it harmful? No. Is it completely and utterly useless to the point you might as well be giving a placebo? Yes. Is there evidence to back up your outlandish claims, Barney? Yes, there is. (laughs) Thank goodness. (laughs) Thank goodness. Um, Don't order ammonia to diagnose or monitor hepatic encephalopathy. Now, this... um, you're going to get people arguing both ways for this um, non-stop. But the current evidence shows it neither <clears throat> rules in nor rules out encephalopathy. And it's a pain finding a freezer if you still have to send it on ice to the lab. Mm. And finally, don't give maintenance IV fluids when the patient can drink and it's clinically stable. We see it all the time and it's such common sense, but it seems to be a, get a reflex action, give them VTE, give them some IV fluids when they clearly are well and can drink. It's so true. Medicalize, over-medicalizing patients. Yeah, absolutely. Once they get through that door. Uh, Cammy, did you have any other sort of suggestions or what were your top picks from, the, from what we've discussed from that paper? Well, of the ones that we've discussed, the one as a GP that I'm going to use the most and already do, luckily, is not giving opioids opioids for mild and acute pain, so using the analgesic ladder. However, I really, really like the one, do not wake patients up at night. Mm. I know that doesn't apply in primary care, but from a lifestyle medicine point of view, sleep is one of the six pillars and it's so important. There's no way these patients can feel well enough to go home when they're completely and utterly sleep deprived. Yeah, it's crazy sometimes. People get woken up four times in a night or something just because there's something very, very slightly wrong with their observations. I mean, they have discussed this and there are some prediction scores, which hopefully will come out, which will give you an idea of who's sick and who needs to have observations overnight and who you can leave alone. Yeah. So fingers crossed that'll be coming into practice soon. Brilliant. Thank you, Cammy. That's, that's excellent. Oh, I'll go on to my one, my next one now. So why, why might someone from a respiratory specialty worry about an upcoming thunderstorm? Maybe you're scared of lightning. Yeah, close. Okay. Okay. Actually, our, our listeners may or may not have heard of thunderstorm asthma. And until recently, I hadn't really paid it much attention. But apparently, it's a real thing and potentially a very real problem. Okay, listeners, think back to November 2016. 
our news was dominated by an inflated moron becoming the US president. Whilst in Melbourne, a storm was brewing. November 21st, a thunderstorm struck. Not particularly unusual for the summer out there, but over the next 30 hours, there were 3,400 excess A&E attendances with asthma attacks, of which 10 were asthma fatalities. That's shocking, isn't it? And actually, Melbourne is not a particularly big city. Um, so 3,400 excess, in, you know, more than they were expecting, is, is, is massive. Yeah, it's crazy. So when they've looked into this, it turns out that the right mix of thunderstorm with specific seasonal grass pollens causes a huge swell of what they call aeroallergens in the atmosphere. And if you are already sensitised to these and have asthma, you could be in big trouble. Importantly, nearly all the patients who attended ED in Melbourne also had seasonal allergic rhinitis. So a recent study of Australian patients published in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology investigated this cohort. This was, rather coolly named, the TASAR study. 228 patients with seasonal allergic rhinitis were interviewed and investigated. About a third just had the rhinitis symptoms. A third described symptoms of thunderstorm asthma, but never actually needed to attend hospital. And a third had a history of, of presenting at some point to hospital with thunderstorm asthma. Now, importantly, all the patients who had thunderstorm asthma requiring hospital admission had a prior history of asthma. So it was not just people who've got a runny nose and rhinitis um, suddenly needing to go to hospital. They all had a prior history. Factors which meant pe- patients were at increased risk of thunderstorm asthma were essentially the same as those with uncontrolled asthma, namely a lower FEV1, worse asthma control questionnaires, higher serum eosinophils, and a higher pheno. The most associated serum allergen was ryegrass pollen, which is found in Australia in abundance, but it's also found in the UK. Respiratory trainee Barney, what are you now, ST64 or something? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, how will this change your management of an asthma patient? I think first thing to say is thunderstorm asthma is real and can potentially be a serious issue. Right now, we don't know which storms might affect it or which patients will get it, apart from possibly those sensitised to grass pollen with features of uncontrolled type 2 inflammation, so that's um, high eosinophils and high pheno. So, optimal baseline asthma treatment and planning to increase their treatment with inhaled steroids if they get features of TA or thunderstorm asthma should be the best way forward. And hopefully this should be reflected in their asthma management plan. Very interesting. So we might find an extra box on the management plan now yeah. what to do in a thunderstorm. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's, it. it's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So Barney, taking us away from niche respiratory, I'm going to cover something both of us will see a lot of, either on the acute take or coming to GP. Migraines. They can be so difficult to treat well and hugely debilitating for a subset of patients. I mean, do you have a go-to treatment? Well, um, I guess I'd be more likely to see them in the acute phase rather than deal with chronic migraines. And for these, my usual weapons are things like triptans, simple analgesia, avoiding opioids as these can actually worsen the whole outcome, Um, occasionally stopping the high flow oxygen started in ED as it clearly isn't a cluster headache, and then things like rest, food, sleep and water. Well, that sounds pretty good, Barney. Well done. (laughs) Thanks, Cam. Now, despite probably causing more harm than good, many patients do end up turning to regular opioids. Whereas there are some prophylactic medications, including beta blockers, topiramate and amitriptyline. 
But have you ever thought about telling your patients to step away from their medications and turn to yoga? I mean, for plenty of other reasons, yes, I suppose I've considered it, but not for migraines, if I'm honest, no. Really? How often do you uh, tell your patients to turn to yoga? Oh, sometimes, sometimes. If, uh, you know, sort of respiratory patients who are looking to do some sort of exercise and some breathing exercises, yeah, I might recommend things like yoga and Tai Chi. Yeah, I'll let you off. Thank you. Well, this is a meta-analysis of six heterogeneous yet reportedly high-quality randomised control trials which compared a yoga to control, which was most often standard medical care. The studies varied in the type of yoga they practiced and the severity of migraines investigated, but a common theme did come out. They used the 10-point scale and found that yoga caused significantly reduced pain compared to control, with improvement of minus 1.21 and a reduction in headache frequency score of minus 1.43. So a change of more than 0.8 in this scale is considered a large difference. There was also significant improvements in migraine-specific scores, such as HIT-6 and the MIDAS score. Okay. So, Kemi, it was quite a small meta-analysis, wasn't it, with only six randomised controlled trials? I mean, were they, were they big studies? Were they quite small? No, very valid question. I mean, there were between 30 and 180 patients in each of the studies, which, as I mentioned, they were pretty mixed as well. They did reanalyze the data after removing one of the studies, which greatly reduced the heterogeneity of scores, and outcomes were still significant, hopefully indicating that the results are pretty robust. Great. Okay. Well, what do you think? Could this be a new suggestion for your patients? Would you consider it? Well, I do feel that we're trained to treat patients very quickly with medications, and I always love considering alternatives to this, especially interventions which are a win-win. There's evidence that yoga is beneficial in lots of physical and mental health problems, so with very few downsides and certainly less risk than most pharmacological treatments for migraines, I think I will consider it for my patients. That's really interesting. And you could think, you know, physiologically and sort of psychologically how things like yoga could could help. So um, that's nice. And I will actually try and remember to consider that for patients um, as probably an add-on treatment when they go home. Cammy, let's move away from the grimy, but let's face it, sexy world of medicine. (laughs) I said it, I said it, there we go. Um, Cammy's rolling her eyes, audience. Um, And cover a couple of psychedelic articles. So psychedelics have been used for centuries with hippies, shamans, cults and religions, and, and now scientists are shouting about their potential benefits. Psychedelics are, simply put, serotonin medications which are hallucinogenics and cause distortions of consciousness. From a recreational perspective, this commonly includes things like magic mushrooms with an active ingredient of psilocybin and lysergic acid diethylamide or LSD, which is made from both synthetic components and a natural fungi. A recent study looked at the safety profile of magic mushrooms. Um, So this was published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology and it used data from the Global Drug Survey, which is a a huge anonymous survey of people using recreational drugs. Of 9,233 magic mushroom users over a year, 19 reported seeking emergency medical care. That's a rate of 0.2% or 0.06% risk per mushroom-taking event. Of these, the vast majority were related to anxiety, panic, or paranoia, and all but one patient was back to normal within 24 hours. There were no reports of significant hemodynamics instability, although there were some reports of seizures. However, B12 
being self-reported, it is impossible to confirm if these were true seizures or just the inter- person's interpretation of what a seizure might be. So does anything appear to increase the risk of adverse events? Yeah, great. That's a great question. I mean, importantly, the majority of people seeking emergency help were mixing either with other drugs or alcohol and other risk factors which you know flagged up were things like having a poor mindset or some sort of poor setting. Okay well done Barney. So far you seem to be encouraging our audience to take psychedelic mushrooms based on a survey. <laughs> um, yeah, no not quite not quite that's not really the reason I'm doing it. Um, what I'm trying to say is what look there is plenty of possible risk of bias obviously with this survey Um, but there are actually many studies including this one which have shown that psilocybin appears very safe which is what you want to know if you are considering it for medical treatments which leads me to my next article an excellent review of psychedelic medications by professor young boldly entitled the age of psychedelics It details the huge renewed interest in psychedelics over the past couple of years or a bit longer and explains the evidence of effectiveness for a whole host of conditions, including things like refractory PTSD, anxiety, depression, lifestyle changes and even eating disorders. Well, that's that's a pretty impressive list. You provided some evidence that magic mushrooms use is safe in the short term, but what about long term? Yeah, um, so there is some evidence and, you know, it's all retrospective, but there have been some recent papers which have reported things like um, the use of MDMA or ecstasy or psilocybin were actually associated with lower odds of psychological distress and suicidal thoughts in US adults who are using them. And... Lifetime use of MDMA or ecstasy and psilocybin is associated with reduced odds of having a major depressive episode in your life. And finally, psilocybin use is actually being associated with lower odds of crime arrests in US adults, which is clearly a bit bizarre, but interesting. Uh, all I want to say are there are lots of associations there, Barney. <laughs> lots of associations. And I'd be the first to explicitly point out that association does not mean causality. But once again, we can be pretty reassured that the use of psychedelics appears to not cause significant long-term damage. And possibly, and I really do mean just possibly, there could be some benefit as well. Okay, well, it's, I mean, it's really interesting. Where can people hear more about this, Barney? So glad you asked, um, as if you've been set up for that. The um, the author of both my aforementioned articles, a really impressive Professor Alan Young, has given us an exclusive interview in which we discuss the science, studies and risks of psychedelic medications. And this will be released in the next couple of weeks, Ooh, I imagine. Very good. Yeah, I can tell you're excited. <laughs> okay, moving on. Um, I hope you enjoyed that psychedelic trip, listeners. But now we're going to go back in time. Well, sort of. We're going to cover a bunch of articles which were recently released, but are linked to ones we covered in previous episodes. So, firstly, vitamin C in sepsis. We discussed this way back in our very first episode, January 2020. And they are still bloody talking about it today. (laughs) Basically, it didn't work as part of a cocktail of drugs and severe sepsis then. But now, in fact, worse than that, current evidence suggests it might even kill you. 
This study, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, is a phase three randomized control trial of 872 patients with sepsis requiring vasopressors. And they were randomized to placebo or vitamin C, IV. Um, this is a much bigger study than most previous vitamin C trials and previous trials pretty much showed no benefit. The primary outcome was a composite of death or persistent organ dysfunction by day 28. This occurred in 45% of the vitamin C recipients and 39% of the control group with a risk ratio of 1.21. Essentially, if anyone starts suggesting vitamin C to your septic patients bar potentially a cool glass of orange juice, just say no. Quick fact about orange juice. A quick fact about orange juice. Um, I'm all ears, Cammy. Well, according to the co-founder of the Zoe Nutrition Studies, Dr. Tim Spector, orange juice gives the equivalent glucose peaks to drinking a full sugar Coke and has less fibre than a cup of coffee. I mean, I guess that makes sense as fructose, fructose is meant to be the worst type of sugar, isn't it? So that, that's, that's why it might give you the, the sugar spikes. But, but it has... But, sorry, anyway... Coffee, right? Coffee has fibre in it. I did not know that. So let's, let's start there. Yeah, very interesting. I was actually just listening to a podcast on the way here. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's very complicated and much more evidence is coming out about this. But fibre is very complicated and can be broken down into lots of different chemicals and molecules. And there are lots of different types of fibre. But yeah, it's all very interesting to find that you know, the average quality kind of filter coffee will have about 1.5 grams of fibre in, okay. of which I think mostly that is soluble fibre. Um, and of course, it does depend on the type of coffee, the way it's brewed and the size of the cup. But if you think that your average kind of UK or US, um, I want to say patient, but I just mean person, has about 15 grams of fibre a day, that's 10% of their intake. Of course, they should be aiming for higher. We really want about 30 grams a day. But I mean, very interesting. If you people have, you know, five cups of coffee a day, that's a significant amount of their daily fibre that they're getting. Mind blown. That's amazing. So sort of, what would you say, 1.5 grams per average cup of coffee? Yeah. Right, well then, slap that vitamin C drip out of the hands of the ICU nurse <laughs> and the sugar-filled, fibre-lacking orange juice out of the hand of the patient. Um, they can just have a coffee instead. And there are lots of other benefits. So jumping on the revisiting bandwagon, let's talk about coffee then. We've talked about coffee a couple of times already, haven't we? It may be one of our most talked about topics. Um, so off the top of my head, I think it was episode 17, 20 and 38, we at least mentioned Just coffee. off the top of your head, just, just like that. Time. I know, wow. it's, I'm, I'm incredible Impressive. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in these, we discussed how it probably reduces mortality and doesn't appear to actually have any cardiovascular side effects. The problem with these studies is that they looked at coffee in general. But what about those people who have a cup of sugar with a teaspoon of coffee on top? Does that take away the benefit? This is a prospective study of over 170,000 healthy UK participants, and they were followed up for a median of seven years. They looked at coffee with sugar, sweetener, or without anything sweet, and they checked for all-cause mortality and cancer or cardiovascular disease mortality. The results are summarised beautifully by some graphs in the paper, but I'll go through some of the highlights. So, coffee sweetened with sugar or without anything sweet conferred benefit to all outcomes. Compared to non-coffee drinkers, those who drank coffee alone had hazard risk ratios of all-cause mortality of around 0.7, indicating roughly a 30% reduction in mortality risk. 
Coffee that was sweetened with sugar also had a mortality benefit, but interestingly, this was more of a U-shaped curve. And by that, I mean when people were getting to five or six cups a day, the hazard ratio actually passes one, implying the benefit is lost and there is potential increased risk. And, you know, too much sugar isn't good for you. Who knew? And then really interestingly, artificial sweetened coffee had no mortality benefit whatsoever. Oh, Cammy, that's so interesting, isn't it? I, I really enjoy that. Um, so what you're saying is really, when we really knuckle down to it and get to the, to the detail, when people have a little bit of sugar in their coffee, I should stop tutting, rolling my eyes and tapping my belly as actually they may still be getting some benefit. Please don't ever do that. No, no, all right, all right, I don't. I usually don't. Anyway, one question though. Do they distinguish between things like filter coffee and instant coffee? Was that discussed? Yeah, they do actually. And uh, the reduced hazard ratios were seen with instant, ground and decaffeinated coffees. And that's interesting. And that also fits with what we've heard before, especially, well, the decaffeinated coffee part, because, you know, we've heard it's not the caffeine, which is the benefits, the other things. Um, that's brilliant. And I think that the lack of benefit with sweeteners is intriguing. Um, I suppose it's not worth delving into too much because, you know, we'll just, we'll just be guessing. But it's attempting, it is tempting to assume that the, the lack of benefit is because of a detrimental effect of the sweeteners sort of outweighing the possible benefit of the coffee. But possibly. that's Im- possibly, but impossible to tell. Mm. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Right. I'll revisit one last topic, an old favourite of mine, pulse oximeters and racial disparities. We last delved into this in episode 50, where we spoke about how saturation probes significantly overestimated blood oxygen to detrimental effects in patients of colour, especially black people. Recent studies have supported this, including a retrospective study published in the BMJ of 30,000 patients in America, in which pulse oximeters overestimated saturations in black, Hispanic and Latino patients compared to whites and another retrospective study published in JAMA of 3,000 patients, which found the same, and also that patients of colour received less oxygen therapy on average than white patients. Well, clearly, this is pretty shocking, Barney. I mean, does any of that change what we know, or what should happen even? Yeah, I suppose there isn't anything particularly mind-blowingly new here, but how this benefits us as, as medics on a whole is that we're gaining a huge amount of evidence from multiple sites that pulse oximeters are not reliable in sick patients of color. And essentially, the technology needs to change or be validated before we can truly trust it. Until then, if in doubt, listeners, get an ABG to ensure the SAO2, that's the arterial oxygen saturations, is in the range you're expecting. And you, you just can't can't just rely on a pulse oximeter if they've got borderline low oxygen saturations. Yeah, really, really interesting. Something to bear in mind. Brilliant. Cammy, want to um, bring down the pH of this episode with something relatively irrelevant? <laughs> okay, so those of you who have worked on the wards with liver disease patients may well have been asked to review patients with leg cramps. What do you give them? You want to avoid paracetamol or opioids because of the liver, NSAIDs because of bleeding, and suddenly you're uh, getting a bit stuck for options. Yeah, and I don't think yoga is going to cut it either. But maybe it would. Who knows? You don't know. I don't know. That's very true. I do not know. Um, but, Cammy, I think the answer is uh, pretty simple, isn't it? You, you just walk off the ward, you get on your bike, you go home, you open the fridge, you find the biggest jar of, uh, wait for it, 
pickles, you go back to the hospital and tell the patient to have a long, delicious drink of the juice. Well, disturbingly, that is exactly correct. (laughs) This was a randomised control trial of 82 patients with cirrhosis who were split one-to-one to either take sips of pickle juice at cramp onset or tap water. Importantly, it seems the patients had to purchase their own pickle juice of their own choosing and the placebo was water. So patient blinding was out the window here. I love the idea of them having to buy their own pickle juice um, to complete a randomised control trial. Anyway, I wonder if that that changes the quality of the pickle juice. Anyway, improvements of cramp visual analogue scale was significantly greater than placebo and there were no adverse effects. Although there were no significant differences in sleep quality or quality of life, it should be added. But the pickle juice works. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. So next time you're on a hepatology ward, make sure you've got some pickle juice in your pocket or something as acidic and maybe a little more tolerable like apple cider vinegar would probably work just as well. I love that. Um, sounds like it's not perhaps the most robust of studies, but... They did find a benefit and they had some theory, I didn't think, didn't they, when I had a look at it, you know, about the low pH um, and how it's acting. So, um, wonderful. There we go. There's a little something for you guys. Just Plus, in this case. I mean, you would just be the coolest F1 ever, wouldn't you, if you were walking around with a jar of pickles in your pocket? Is that what you think is cool? That is, <laughs> that's what impresses you. How old am oh, I? Wow. <laughs> Man, I obviously need to start carrying around some pickle juice to impress Cammy. <laughs> All right. Amazing. Wow, we have covered such a lot. Um, that Cammy, thank you for all your hard work and for going through those papers. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the pickled end. Um, so much to take in and so much possible practice changing medicine. Right, as always, we're going to tell you our top picks. Um, Cammy, do you want to go first? Anything, you know... F- Anything which was going to potentially change your practice? Sure. I mean, I work in primary care, so some of it isn't going to be as relevant. But I always really like the um, oxygen saturations in uh, people of colour one. It's always something to be really, really mindful of. Um, And so I always take that one home and away with me to work. Uh, The other thing is kind of yoga for migraines. I really like that one. Having something else to um, suggest for patients. Um, Yeah, I like those two, I think, out of the ones we said today. Sure, I think we've covered loads. I think um, I'm going to tell everyone to start taking magic mushrooms. I'm joking, I'm joking. I'm not actually going to do that, gosh. Um, But again, just going through, I found it really interesting going through those. My views have changed and the four-hour target, and actually I think I'm going to be much... um, more receptive to when people tell me I need to hurry up because patients are breaching. I've already gone into the office and sort of told everybody in the research team about the coffee data. Um, and interesting, we had one person drinking orange juice, one drinking, person drinking coffee the other day, and I was the most annoying person they could possibly imagine because I kept telling them all the facts. Your colleagues must really love you. Oh man, the poor things, <laughs> the poor things. I do feel sorry for them sometimes. So there's, I picked up loads of things from these studies. Um, at the very least, great facts to share with people and yeah, really uh, nice ones, yeah. plenty to uh, potentially change my practice as well. Brilliant. All right, guys. Well, look, thanks for listening, everybody. Take care of yourselves. Don't get too hot. And fingers crossed, England are going to win the European Cup. Come on, England. <laughs> you have been listening to Journal Spotting with your hosts, Dr. Barnaby Hirons and Dr. Cammy Hirons. Information and links from the show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter at journalspotting, Facebook or Instagram. Special thanks goes to St. George's Healthcare and HEE for their generous grant. 
If you liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.